0: you've been with us these last several weeks, you know that we are working our way through a series through the book of Hebrews. A sermon written by a pastor desperately trying to encourage a small, struggling house church as they were being persecuted from every side, not to neglect the great salvation that they have been given It's a message that we need to hear as well. So I invite you this morning, stand for a reading of God's word. We continue our sermon series, Hebrews chapter 2. I'll begin reading in verse 5. The author of Hebrews writes, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him? crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist and bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering this is the word of the Lord you can be seated A few weeks ago, I stumbled upon a book entitled A Brief History of Thought. It's written by a contemporary French philosopher named Luc Ferry. The book is basically a summary of all of human thought over five major eras, or what he calls the great moments of philosophy. There's the ancient Greeks, the Christian Middle Ages, the Enlightenment post-modernity, in our present era of deconstructionism. Now, I know you're just still waking up, so I won't repeat that again, but this is what I want you to know. Luke Ferry is not a Christian. He's an atheist, but I want you to listen closely to his definition of philosophy. He says, if religions can be defined as doctrines of salvation, The great philosophies can also be defined as doctrines of salvation, but without the help of God. He went on to say this, the quest for our salvation without God is at the heart of every great philosophical system. What is he saying? He's saying if you want to know what the basic summation of human thought throughout all history is, the history of human thought can be summarized like this. It is a quest for a way of salvation apart from God. Now why is that so true? Because whether you believe in God this morning or not, Wherever you come from in your faith background, whatever you perceive him to be, every single one of us in this sanctuary right now must recognize one thing. The world that we live in is not quite right. Not only that, but we are not quite right either. And every day we are confronted with this fact that things are off. They're broken and confronted with a world that suffers, confronted with our own hearts that sin. Every one of us must recognize that we need someone or something to come and rescue us, to come and make everything that is wrong right again. And so for centuries, Human beings have searched for a way of salvation apart from God. This morning, the writer of Hebrews is going to show us why salvation can only be found in Jesus. Only Jesus has made a way for our great salvation. The first way that I want you to see this this morning, I want you to know that there will one day be glory in the world to come. Every journey has a destination. Every human way of salvation has a goal. And every one of us is operating out of some future vision of what we one day hope the world will be like. And that affects the way that we live right here and right now every single day. Let me show you what I mean. For most of us growing up in the United States of America, we have a future vision. It's often called the good life. The promise of the good life goes like this, that if you work hard, if you get a good education, if you do the right things, then with a little bit of luck, you will experience the good life. Health. Health. Wealth and the glory of prosperity right here and right now. Now, I think there's two main issues with that. The first is it's not true. It's not true because that's not true by what we experience. You can work very, very hard, receive a great education, do your best to do everything as right as you possibly can, and yet still end up diagnosed with a terminal illness. Wealth and health and prosperity are not necessarily promised to us as hard as we might work for them. But the second and bigger issue is that the vision of the good life, it's incredibly short sighted. You see, the American vision for a future good life here and now only thinks about this world. But the Bible, the Bible promises a glory in the world to come. I wonder, when was the last time that you thought about eternity? When was the last time that you thought about the world to come? You see, you may not realize this, but every single one of us was created for eternity. And we have been promised by God a future glory that one day Jesus Christ is going to return and make all things new. He's going to restore all that has been broken in creation. And so what does this future glory look like? What does restoration have in store for us? Well, the author of Hebrews begins by telling us what it doesn't look like. I want you to look at verse five. Author of Hebrews says this. He says, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. So, look, if you are wondering, God did not subject the future world to angels. I'm sure that was all on your minds this morning. Why would he go to such great lengths to make sure that we understand that the future glory does not belong to angels. Well, remember, he's trying to help us to see just how great our salvation really is. And at the time that this was written, people believed that the future world, the world that is to come, that is eternity, the new heavens and the new earth, that one day that would be ruled by angels. And so the author of Hebrews is saying, "Look." I've already shown you in chapter one that Jesus is superior to the angels. And now in chapter two, I wanna remind you that the angels are not going to inherit the new heavens and new earth. The glory of the world to come does not belong to angels. Well, if that's true, then who does the glory belong to? He tells us in verse six, he says, it has been testified somewhere, what is man, that you are a mindful of him, or the son of man, that you care for him. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, when you first read that or hear that, you might assume that he must be talking about Jesus. I mean, after all, he's been talking about how Jesus is superior to the angels, and so who does this future glory in the new heavens and new earth, who does it belong to? Well, I guess the hymn here, pronouns can be a funny thing. Maybe it, maybe it is referring to Jesus. But you see, remember, this is a sermon. This is a preacher exegeting scripture, and what you might not realize is right now he is quoting Psalm chapter 8. I want you to listen to Psalm 8 as it was originally written in the Old Testament according to the New English Translation. I'm going to read slow, and I want you to listen closely. Of what importance is the human race that you should notice them? Or Of what importance is mankind that you should pay attention to them and make them a little less than heavenly beings? You grant mankind honor and majesty. You appoint them to rule over your creation. You have placed everything under their authority. In other words, the author of Hebrews, what's he saying? Future glory does not belong to angels. Who does it belong to? It belongs to us. It belongs to human beings. God made us in his image the angels cannot say that God made us in his image C.S. Lewis wrote there are no ordinary people you have never met a mere mortal how can he say that because we've been made in the image of God we have been endowed, we have been entrusted with the very characteristics of godliness. And so in Genesis chapter 1, after God makes all of creation and declares that it is good, he then makes the crown jewel of his creation. Genesis 1:26. God said, "Let us make man in our image." after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over livestock and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. We could just stop here, and this would be the rest of the sermon. There is so much in this one verse, but I want to point out a word to you. It's a word that the author of Hebrews wants us to see. Let them have dominion. Let them have dominion. Originally in the garden, God gave us as his created image bearers, dominion, rulership, authority over creation. We are his vice regents, entrusted to reign and rule over his created order. And so the author of Hebrews is saying, look, one day that glory, the glory that belonged to us in the garden, one day that glory is going to be restored. The future world is not going to be subjected to angels, it's going to be subjected to us as God's people because in and through Jesus Christ we will be restored to what God always intended us to be, His divine image bearers, stewards of His kingdom, reigning and ruling over creation. Now there's just one problem with that. That is not our experience today. The second thing I want you to see, at present we live in a fallen world. I want you to look with me. It's there in the text. The end of verse 8 Author of Hebrews says, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Who's the him? We don't see everything in subjection to humanity, do we? No, rather than having dominion over creation, creation, fallen and broken, now has dominion over us. And we feel this deep in our bones. We find ourselves caught between two worlds a promised world to come where everything will be made new, and a world that is a present world that is broken and frayed. You see, because of the fall, things can't be subjected to humanity because we are too sinful. We are too broken. We no longer bear the image of God, we bear the image of Adam. What does that mean? Well, Genesis tells us that Adam and Eve sinned against God. They rejected God's authority and they wanted autonomy. They wanted to go their own way. They questioned God's promise. They questioned his instruction. And in pride, they sinned. And now, rather than bearing the image of God, you and I bear the image of Adam and Eve. Just like them, we've gone our own way. Every single day, we reject God's authority. Rather than bow before him as king, we've made ourselves kings and queens of our own little kingdoms. And every single day, we willfully disbelieve his promises. And we question him along with the serpent. Did God really say? But not only are we broken and sinful, but that question, did God really say, is just perpetuated by the broken world that we live in. Not only are we fallen as human beings, but we live in a fallen world. And so, if this present world is not subjected to humanity, who is it subjected to? Paul tells us that it's subjected to futility. It's subjected to sin. It's a world subjected to strife and sadness and illness and cancer and division, a world subjected to frustration. Ultimately, it's a world subjected to suffering and a world subjected to death. As we, as God's people, are confronted with this fallen world, and with the effects of sin deep in our hearts, we find ourselves longing for this future hope of the world to come, and yet all we can see around us on the way is nothing but suffering and death. And what does that do? That causes us to drift. You see, we are tempted to drift from the way of salvation because we look around us and we are afraid. The way of salvation looks more like a way of suffering. Who would want to go down a path like that? And so we can't see the world to come. All we see is the world here and now, and we are tempted to go another way. But the author of Hebrews does not stop there. If at present we do not see a world subjected to a glorified humanity, what do we see? He makes it clear in verse 9. I want you to look with me. What do we see in a world marked by sin and suffering and death? What do we see in the midst of a fallen and broken world? We see Jesus. Verse 9 the author of Hebrews, we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. In other words, I'm not talking about humanity anymore. I'm talking about humanity par excellence. I'm talking about God made man. I'm talking about Jesus Christ incarnate He was crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In other words, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, like us, for a little while was made lower than the angels. But unlike us, right here and right now, he is crowned with glory and honor so that one day we as his people might be crowned with glory and honor again. How did he do that? The writer of Hebrews tells us, because of the suffering of death. Jesus Christ came down into our fallen world and he took on our sinful flesh And then he tasted death on the cross so that we might taste salvation. He goes on and says this in verse 10. He says, for it was fitting that he, that is Jesus, for whom and by whom all things exist and bringing many sons to glory, that's you and I, all those who are in Christ, how did he bring us to this world of glory and honor? He made him the founder of their salvation." Perfect through suffering. The author of Hebrews calls Jesus the founder of salvation. He uses the same word in Hebrews 12, where he calls Jesus the founder and perfecter of faith. Now, the word founder was often used in Greek mythology to describe a champion, a captain, one who fought on behalf of the people. But it can also be translated as a pioneer, a forerunner, or my favorite, a trailblazer. I grew up backpacking with my dad. I don't know how many of you have ever been backpacking before. For some of you, it sounds like your greatest dream. Others of you, your greatest nightmare. It's where you go hiking, but for longer than just a few hours or even just a few days, but for even a whole week and you carry everything on your back, and you go into the back country where there's been few people. One of the things that I was always astounded by when I went backpacking back in the back country is somebody had to make this trail. Like There are people out there who go and pioneer new places in the wilderness. They, they brave the dangers of an unknown territory where there are no trails, And they make a path. They make a way. And not only are they explorers for themselves, but as they are doing this, they are making a trail to leave behind. Why? So that others can follow them to see what's on the other side. Jesus is our trailblazer. He has made a path, a way, through the wilderness of a fallen world. But he hasn't just made a way for himself, he's made a way for us. And he is inviting you and I this morning, He's saying, come, follow me. Follow me on the way of salvation. Follow me through the wilderness to glory. The early church did not call themselves Christians. They called themselves followers of the way. Can you imagine if we still used that today? People asked, hey, what do you believe? Oh, I'm a follower of the way. I wish we did that. I think you should try it this week. Tell you what, I promise I will, to see how people respond. Why did they call themselves that? Well, it's a reference to a prophecy in Isaiah chapter 40. It's part of our call to worship this morning you can turn there near for bulletin if you want the prophet isaiah isaiah chapter 40 says this a voice cries in the wilderness prepare the way of the lord make straight in the desert a highway for our god this prophecy marked the beginning of jesus's ministry in the gospel of luke In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord." The old church, the first Christians, they saw themselves as being on a journey along the way of salvation. And in this moment in their life, as the book of Hebrews is being written, they're finding themselves just like the people of Israel, Leaving slavery in Egypt, they find themselves in the wilderness. They find themselves surrounded by suffering, by sin, and by even death. This morning I wonder, what do you find yourself surrounded by? Where do you most feel the reality that this present world is not subjected to us, but it's subjected to futility? Where do you experience suffering? Because when we experience that, we are tempted to find another way. A way of prosperity. A way of humanism. A way of intellectualism. A way of the success of our children. A way of great business decisions a way of success a way of notoriety a way of fill in the blank thing after thing after thing human attempts at salvation apart from God and every one of them has two things in common first every one of them seeks to avoid suffering and to cheat death and the second every single one of them will never work Proverbs says that there is a way that seems right to man that ends in death. And at the end of his book, the philosopher Luke Ferry amazingly recognized that of all the different ways of salvation that he had surveyed, Christianity was the most compelling. Why? Because it's the only one, the only path that says, I'm not going to avoid suffering but I'm going right after it. Jesus Christ tasted death. He paved a way of salvation through suffering. By taking on the suffering of sin on the cross and rising again on the third day, he has made a way for glory for all those who will follow him. Who will follow him to the cross, And through his victory, follow him to life and the resurrection. So this morning, what way are you on? Who or what are you following? Will you follow Jesus Christ, who is our trailblazer, who is calling after you, follow me to the cross, follow me to glory? Let me pray. Father in heaven, we confess this morning that it is easy for our eyes to drift, to see other ways of human salvation and think maybe they have a better way for us, a way that's less frightening, a way that avoids suffering. Lord, help us to see that the way of suffering on the cross is the way of Jesus. This morning, help us to follow our leader, our captain, our trailblazer, Jesus Christ, who has gone before us to death, even death on a cross, and who has risen again. Father, if there's any of us this morning who have never been on that way, who for years have wandered on a way that leads to death, Father, I pray that you would work in their hearts now. If that describes you this morning, I want you to pray this simple prayer. Holy Spirit, show me the way. Show me Jesus. May I see his death and resurrection for my sin. And may I know that he has given me forgiveness and given me life, not because of me, because of what he has done on the cross. Pray in Jesus' name, amen.